This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics and a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. This has been a hell of a week. It's not just the worst pandemic in 100 years, and it's not just the worst economic depression in 80 years. Following the police killing of George Floyd in Minnesota, cities across the country have seen a wave of intense protests and police violence, including Virginia cities like Manassas, Virginia Beach, and Richmond. We'll try to understand those on another episode of Bold Dominion, but today we're looking at the Richmond suburbs and the upcoming election for Virginia's 7th district in the U.S. House. We're also looking at Virginia's 2nd district over in the Hampton Roads area. Party primaries and conventions for these U.S. House races are taking place in the coming weeks, ahead of November's general election. Both the 7th and the 2nd U.S. House districts voted for Trump in 2016, but then two years later they flipped in the midterm elections. Democrats Abigail Spanberger in the 7th and Elaine Luria in the 2nd both won by razor-thin margins. This fall, these first-term lawmakers will face their yet-to-be-determined Republican challengers. Today we're talking about their potential opponents, their chances of re-election, and the consequences of holding on to their seat. Kyle Kondik is the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. That's their nonpartisan newsletter on American campaigns. Well, Kyle Kondik, you know, I want to go back a couple of years to 2018, where uh, Elaine Luria and Abigail Spanberger were part of a wave of newly elected Democratic women uh, here in Virginia, and that reflected a trend really across the whole country. Um, What led to that wave? Well, first of all, just generically speaking, midterm elections are are very often a a kind of a a backlash vote against the against the White House. Usually the president, the party that holds the presidency lose loses ground in either one or or both midterms if someone gets elected to it to to eight years in the White House. Um, And, uh, you know, we saw this with Barack Obama and that Obama lost. Then the Democrats lost the House in his first midterm. They lost the Senate in the second one. Um, George W. Bush, Republicans actually had a rare, decent midterm uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, lead up to the Iraq War in 2002. But 2006, Republicans lost the House and the Senate that year. Um, so again, particularly when the president has poor approval rating, as the president as President Trump did, not horrible, but, but his, his approval is lower than his disapproval, um, that led to a backlash vote. And you really saw it manifested in um, districts that were kind of suburban had um, either had some diversity or had uh, uh, higher levels of four-year college attainment. You know, those are demographic characteristics that gener- generally reflect places that are either democratic or maybe becoming more democratic. Um, and the interesting thing about the, the uh, some of the districts that the uh, Democrats flipped in Virginia, there are three total, um, Jennifer Wexton in Northern Virginia's 10th district that is the most actually is the highest median income of any district in the country uh, and is a district that was historically Republican and very highly educated. But um, that that district has become so Democratic that Wexton doesn't really seem to have much trouble getting reelected. But uh, Virginia, too, in Hampton Rose that Elaine Luria won is classically a, a swing district, although it's the lines have changed there from time to time. But that's been a competitive district for a long time. And then Virginia's 7th Congressional District that used to be held by um, a former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, um, that's a district that contains um, growing, highly educated, democratic-trending areas in greater Richmond. And it also combines it with sort of more rural, small-town areas in central Virginia. 
Uh, Virginia 2 and Virginia 7 were actually carried by Trump in 2016, but Democrats were able to narrowly win those House seats. And as Republicans try to figure out a way to try to win the House back, it's pretty natural for them to focus on districts that Trump carried and uh, 2 and 7 in Virginia uh, stand out in that regard. Let's take a closer look at those races. I spoke with 538 elections analyst Jeff Skelly about the 2nd and 7th congressional districts in Virginia. This year, uh, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia's 7th district, there are eight Republicans trying to uh, get the nomination to face her in that district, which includes the uh, uh, Richmond suburbs and then uh, part of Virginia going sort of north and west from there. Um, what's this race look like? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to say for sure, uh, only because it's not a primary. You know, if it were a primary, we could sort of look at how much money different candidates on the Republican side were raising. We could see who was running television ads and, and kind of wonder, you know, who's who's getting their message out the best. Uh, we might even see some internal polling released by different candidates. Uh, and so that would give us a better idea. But instead, because it's a convention deciding the nomination for the Republicans, you have different factors that are sort of hard to pin down exactly in terms of who really is advantaged or disadvantaged. So uh, the candidates have been making their case to delegates at the convention, uh, which will meet on July 18th. They actually just announced uh, the new date there. It had been pushed back because of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so they're meeting on July 18th in Caroline County. The difference between a convention and a primary, primary is what we're kind of used to. We show up at the polls, we show our ID, we go, we make a mark on a piece of paper, and we leave. A convention typically is, is really just a gathering of the party activists, right? People who are, like, really committed, and they all show up in a county and, and do their thing. Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's precisely right. I mean, a primary election is standard election. Your polling place, your precinct is open. You go in. You fill out the ballot, you submit it, you know, that whole process might take you 10 minutes once you get there. Uh, <laughs> you might spend more time going to your precinct than actually the time you spend at the precinct. Um, and it also ensures wider participation. Uh, at the end of the day, a primary is always going to have a lot more people participating than uh, a caucus convention system. And so, yeah, a convention at the end of the day usually involves the people who are most committed to the party most energized. And in this case, thinking about a Republican convention, you know, it's, that probably means that the people voting at the convention will be more conservative than your average Republican who would show up at a primary. And who do you think are the actually viable contenders in this process? We have some idea of who the leading candidates are. Um, you know, the leading candidates are, are likely Nick Freitas, who is a member of the Virginia House of Delegates, you may remember him from running for Senate in 2018. He, he was one of the two Republican candidates, and he lost narrowly in the primary to Corey Stewart. Um, I suspect that Freitas would not have lost quite as badly as Stewart did, though obviously 2018 was, was not a good time to be running statewide as a Republican in Virginia. Uh, another member of the Virginia House of Delegates, John McGuire, is running. Um, he is newer to the House of Delegates by a term, um, but you know McGuire, part of his district actually takes in uh, Henrico County, just a part of Henrico County. There are a lot of districts that that take in parts of Henrico, and so he's he's been sort of making a case that he might be a candidate who can do a better job winning over voters in the suburbs, which was critical to Abigail Spanberger winning in 2018. She ran up huge margins in the part of Henrico County that's in the seventh congressional district, which is where she's from. 
uh, and also in Chesterfield County, uh, to the south of Richmond, uh, most of the county is in the seventh, and she ran up margins there that that helped her win in the end, um, and over sort of overcame the rest of the district, which is very rural and very Republican leaning. Uh, so McGuire, I think, is trying to make the case that oh, I can be the candidate who can can make inroads there. Um, I, I saw some news reports that that he claimed he had submitted. Uh, more than half of the delegates who were coming from Henrico County. He's making the case that he's got a fair amount of support heading into the convention. Uh, and one of the other candidates I think that has gotten some attention was actually the first person to enter the race against Spamberger on the Republican side, uh, Tina Ramirez, basically a conservative activist from Chesterfield County, uh, again, which is the, the, you know this big county in the district actually is the most populous part of the district. And she's claimed that she's won a quote-unquote overwhelming victory in the mass meetings in Chesterfield, so lining up a lot of the delegates that were elected at those mass meetings that are now going to the convention. It sort of seems like those are the three main candidates that you know I would suspect the winner would come out of that. But at the same time, there, there are other candidates running, and you just don't know how things are going to shake out once, once you're actually at the convention. So say I'm a delegate and I'm at the convention— What's the nomination process look like? The way the convention process usually works for nominations like this is you'll have a first ballot and then the candidate who is lowest or they'll make some sort of ruling on, on at the convention about what barrier or what uh, sort of what threshold you have to meet to, to advance to a, a future ballot. But with this many candidates, it will likely take more than one ballot to decide. And so you could see maneuvering different supporters of, of different candidates shifting over, you know, if someone gets knocked out, they shift to someone else. So that's why it's pretty unpredictable. All right. Well, what about over in the second district? That looks like it's just a regular old primary there. Which candidate is, uh, is in the lead? The leading Republican candidate, probably the, the nominee there uh, is Scott Taylor, who represented that district and lost it in 2018 to, to um, Elaine Luria. And he actually initially was going to challenge Mark Warner for the U.S. Senate race, but then he decided to to run for his old seat instead. And second, uh, and, and for mostly Virginia Beach is the sort of the, the biggest part of that district. And, you know, it's a, a district with a lot of uh, veterans, former military. And so it's no surprise that Loria, who was in the Navy, uh, won that seat in 2018, but against a former Navy SEAL in Taylor, uh, who is now trying to, to win the Republican nomination is almost very likely to looking at sort of the fundraising and stuff. There's a primary there for the Republicans. So that'll help Taylor, uh, Taylor, uh, Scott Taylor and Elaine Luria had a very close race, uh, last time around. And, you know, who, who knows exactly how that will play out. Uh, but Trump won that seat by about three points in, in 2016. So it's again, a slightly Republican leaning seat as sort of a baseline partisanship. Uh, so, not as much as the seventh is, but but nonetheless, if the top of the ticket is is decent for the Republicans there, even if Trump is losing statewide in Virginia, that could help Taylor uh, down ballot. Uh, one thing that has been remarked on a lot uh, in the sort of bluing of Virginia from not that many years ago when it had a Republican governor and, and Republican majorities in both the House and the Senate, and now it's exactly the opposite. Um, and, you know, looking at the voting patterns of, of Virginia and really around the country, there's this um, pattern where urban areas tend to skew very strongly toward Democratic votes. Uh, rural areas skew very strongly toward Republican votes. And so the fight really is in the suburbs. 
at least in Virginia, the last couple election cycles, it seems like a lot of those suburban votes are trending toward Democrats. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think it, there are probably a number of explanations. Uh, for one thing, Virginia is a particularly well-educated state. And after race, education has become sort of the, the next most powerful explanatory factor in why people vote the way they do. Um, so if you look at white voters in particularly, you can see this. Uh, white voters with a college degree, a four-year college degree or more, at least in Virginia now, uh, vote somewhat more Democratic than Republican. Uh, and actually, that's been it's been trending that way uh, nationally to some extent. So Virginia, being a relatively well-educated state, has a much larger share of its population that has at least a four-year degree than some of the other states that have been sort of battleground places in, in recent national elections. Uh, you know, say like a Pennsylvania or a Wisconsin or Michigan. Virginia has a higher higher share of college-educated voters, and so I think that given the number of, of voters who fit that description who live in places like suburban Richmond, you know, Henrico or Chesterfield counties or suburban Washington, D.C., in Fairfax and Loudoun and Prince William County, or even parts of, of the Tidewater, you know, down in Hampton Roads in the southeast in places like Virginia Beach or Chesapeake uh, or Newport News. I mean, that those the the college-educated voter shift is definitely a part of this story. Um, Virginia also is relatively diverse. Um, those A lot of those suburbs have become more diverse. Um, actually, if you look at parts of Chesterfield County, uh, it used to be a very, a very white suburban, exurban county, and it has changed a lot uh, and is, is much more diverse now than it used to be. Same for Henrico, same for you know much of Northern Virginia. Uh, and voters who are non-white tend to be more Democratic-leaning. What's making Virginia more highly educated and, and more diverse relative to some other states in the area? Oh, I mean, there there could be a number of explanations for that. Uh, one, Virginia has a very good public education uh, system, at least when it comes to the number of public colleges and universities it has. Uh, also, the fact that Washington, D.C. is right there. So particularly for Northern Virginia, there's there's just this this focal point that's attracted a lot of people who are highly educated to that area of the state. Um, Richmond also has that to some extent, and maybe that has to do with the the companies that are in Richmond. There are a fair number that are headquartered there. Uh, so you know those are other aspects of it. You know, there there could be other economic reasons that go into this. I mean, a lot of the states that I mentioned, like a Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin, are in some cases, post-industrial Rust Belt states where the traditional economic engines of those states, which had an impact on the politics of those states through things like unionization, um, were in areas of heavy industry that maybe don't exist quite the way they used to or don't exist at all. Jeff Skelly is an elections analyst at 538. Stick around. We're diving into redistricting in Virginia in just a moment. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to figure out Virginia state politics? Tell them about this show. And then subscribe in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. While you're isolated at home, check out Ask a Wayfinder, it's an audio advice column that combines wisdom with mindfulness techniques. The latest episode asks how we can learn about ourselves through our relationships with others. 
with some fine listening for this time of social distancing. That podcast and many more are online at virginiaaudio.org. And we're back. This is Bold Dominion, and we've got Jeff Skelly, elections analyst at 538. A lot of the districts in Virginia are, are drawn in such a way, including the 5th district here, are drawn in such a way just to favor one party over another by just enough points to be pretty safe. Um, and so you get like an R plus 6 district here in the 5th, some other districts that were uh, fairly safe at one time until different court orders changed it so that they, they had to be a little bit more balanced uh, for various reasons. Um you know, what's the map going to look like after this cycle, looking ahead to the next cycle? Well, we've just sort of moved forward with redistricting reform in the state of Virginia. Uh, You know, it looks like there's going to be a bipartisan commission. I don't think you should call it nonpartisan because much of the membership of the, of the committee drawing the maps is going to be, they're going to be members of the state general assembly. Um, But, it's going to be a process where there's actually a committee and you need super super majority agreement on what the lines look like. Otherwise the state Supreme court draws the lines. And this is true for both the general assembly districts and uh, the congressional districts. Um, So that would seemingly point to less nefarious lines one way or the other uh, for either party Uh, and probably more uh, truer communities of interest being kept together uh, less ugly districts. Now, to be fair, you know, one of the challenges here is that uh, people talk about redistricting and being against gerrymandering. And you could be against gerrymandering, but because on its face, it's bad. And, and I agree, you know, it's, it's not, you know, voters should be picking the representatives, not the other way around. But you do still have geography to deal with and the state lines. And, you know, Virginia is kind of a weirdly shaped state. So in some cases, you're going to have districts that might be kind of long and skinny in certain places. I don't know, like the, the, the sixth district of Virginia right now ranges all the way from Roanoke up to um, just outside of basically Winchester. And, you know, it's kind of long and, and you could talk about like, is Roanoke really in the same community of interest as Harrisonburg, Virginia, for instance? They both run along Interstate 81, so maybe. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, there are going to be some districts that just aren't going to look great just because of geography. Also, you know, each district has to represent 700 and some thousand people, right? So you can't just draw it only for the far southwestern counties. There's not enough people. <laughs> right, exactly. And so that's going to be uh, one of the things that's going to happen uh, with the next r- round of redistricting in Virginia is that the ninth congressional district in that is basically most of southwest Virginia up to just outside of Roanoke is going to have to get larger because its population growth is either basically zero or it's actually shrunk um, because many of the counties in that part of the state have seen very little population growth. Um, But I guess at the end of the day, it could still happen that it could get a a new seat. And that would obviously have an impact on, on what the lines look like because it would decrease the number of people that need to be in each district uh, to some extent Um, or relative to if you have 11, um, 11 districts. Uh, but assuming that it stays at 11, which I think is a, a reasonable assumption at this point, uh, you know, there are going to be have to be adjustments where many of the more rural districts are going to get physically larger and in terms of the, the amount of land area they cover and districts in suburban urban areas are going to get a little smaller because that's where most of the growth has been in places like northern Virginia. 
you know, like the 10th congressional district, which takes in all of Loudoun County, parts of Prince William County, and runs over to Winchester uh, to the west. That district almost certainly has has way too much population uh, because of the growth in Loudoun. Uh, and so it's going to have to shed voters uh, in some way. And so where those voters end up, is it the 6th? Is it parts of the 5th? Those are questions that are going to have to be answered and figured out. Um, so some of it will depend on you know what the members of the General Assembly want uh, in the end. Uh, and the fact that they're not going to be able to just draw districts advantageous to whichever party controls things uh, because of the supermajority requirement on this committee uh, where you basically have to have someone from the other party agree with you uh, is a, a situation where you probably will see fairly clean lines or as clean as can be drawn because another thing that's important to remember is that Virginia, because its population is about a fifth African-American, uh, will be trying to draw districts that that – keep the Voting Rights Act in mind to some extent, um, are either majority African-American or are plurality African-American. Um, uh, as the current districts, the third and the fourth, have have very large African-American populations and have African-American members of Congress, Bobby Scott from the third and yeah. Donald McKeachin from the fourth. Yeah. Well, looking ahead, uh, where do you see Virginia going in November? Well, I mean, I think in the presidential race, you would have to peg Joe Biden as a favorite over Donald Trump in Virginia. Uh, Donald Trump did, I think the last time a candidate, a Republican won a lower percentage of the vote uh, than Trump did in 2016 in Virginia was Richard Nixon in 1968. And that had the added complication of the third party run of George Wallace. So it really is an asterisk and maybe we would, you, you wouldn't even want to compare it to that. Uh, so the point being, uh, Trump did worse than any Republican in recent memory in Virginia. And I, I think the president probably isn't set to do a lot better than that. Now, I don't want to write it off entirely because who knows what's going to happen in the next few months. Um, but you know, you would you would view Joe Biden as a favorite to, to win the state's 13 electoral votes. Odds are Warner is going to sail to a fairly smooth re-election uh, in the Senate race. Kyle Kondig with uh, UVA Center for Politics. What's your last take here? Uh, I think Luria and Spanberger are kind of mildly favored, but but I you know I think those will be competitive races that attract outside spending. You know, some of it will determine who the who the Republican nominees are and how effective they end up being as candidates, which I think is still an open question. Um, but look, those are those are competitive districts that should be competitive races. Again, I would separate out the the third district the Democrats picked up in 2018, Jennifer Wexton's seat in Virginia 10 in Northern Virginia. I think she should be okay because um, Biden is going to win that district and probably by a significant amount, and that gives her a lot of cover. Um, and I don't think Demo Republicans are going to strongly contest that district. You know, one other little factor here is that. Um, uh, the Virginia 10 is covered by the Washington, D.C. media market, which is an um, you know, expensive expense, one of the most expensive markets in the country. And that has ramifications for, um, you know, ad advertising spending, particularly on network television, whereas um, Virginia 7 and Virginia 2 are more covered by kind of smaller media markets. And so it's less um, it's less expensive to buy advertising time. And so 
if you're a if you're a national campaign committee, the barrier for entry is is cheaper and smaller and lower in districts like Virginia two and Virginia seven than they are in Virginia ten, and so that also might contribute to Virginia ten being less competitive. But that's a you know that's a that's a Clinton district that's going to vote for Biden. Mm-hmm. Whereas Virginia two and Virginia seven may very well vote for Trump again. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, that Lurie and Spanberger can't win. It's just that um, they're going to, those districts are just more competitive and they're going to have to, you know, attract some crossover support to win. Kyle Kondik is the managing editor at Sabato's crystal ball at UVA's center for politics. Thanks to him and our other guest today, 538 elections analyst, Jeff Skelly. Thanks as always to our producer, Ariane Balu and also to our newest producer, Charlie Bruce. I'm really excited to have Charlie joining the team this summer. Thanks for the intro, Nathan. I'm really excited to join the team. Kyle's closing comment in the last segment is coincidentally a theme we will be exploring more this summer, 2010 versus 2020. The census years bookended a big decade of change in Virginia. From race to education to politics, we're going to talk about what happened, where we are today, and what the future will look like. I'm really excited. Thanks, Charlie. And my name is Nathan Moore. I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Find this show online at bolddominion.org. Go ahead and subscribe. It's just a click away. Keep social distancing, and I'll talk to you again in two weeks.